This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The State Department is sending the Ukrainian military another $350 million worth of weapons. This is the third time that President Biden has authorized the State Department to send emergency security assistance to Ukraine from the U.S. stockpiles, now totaling $1 billion in security assistance this year. President Biden announced during his State of the Union address that a vast majority of federal workers should return to the office. His statement comes as COVID-19 rates continue to improve across the country and mass mandates are being lifted. The president said that federal employees return to work will serve as a model for the rest of America to do the same. The Senate Judiciary Committee announced that the confirmation hearings for President Biden's Supreme Court pick, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, will start on Monday. If confirmed, Judge Jackson will be the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Senator Chuck Schumer said that he wants Judge Jackson confirmed by April 8th. The image resolution of commercial satellites has been dramatically improving over the years. And with that better technology, commercial remote sensing capability becomes a more important component to the Defense Department and the intelligence community's needs. Todd Harrison is at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, welcome to the program. Hey, good to be back. What's the role and what benefits do commercial space sensing systems provide to national security missions? Yeah, you know, they provide a whole host of benefits, uh, mainly in that they can complement government uh, remote sensing systems that tend to be much more expensive, uh, lower quantity, but very exquisite in their capabilities. And so what commercial systems can do uh, is provide extra capacity uh, does not always have the same, you know, exquisite capabilities that our government systems have, uh, but it can provide a capability that's good enough, and it allows for higher revisit rate, uh, and in some cases, you know, unwarned collection because an adversary may not realize uh, that they're going to be sensed through all of these other, you know, non-government systems as well. So you say that one of the biggest obstacles for the government to effectively access commercial space capabilities is the acquisition and contracting system. Why is that and what's the solution? Yeah, so, you know, the traditional government approach, uh, you know, when working with defense companies, but also commercial companies has been to go to them and say, hey, this is exactly what we want. We're going to write out the requirements and the specifications. We're going to basically engineer it for you. uh, And then we want you to build to these specifications. And then the government would pay for all of the development uh, and the government would own the system and operate the system itself. And what we see happening in the commercial space sector is companies are being founded and are being, uh, you know, getting all sorts of investment dollars based on a very different business model. And that business model is they're going to use private equity uh, to fund the development of these systems. They're going to maintain ownership of them and they're going to operate them themselves. And they would love to sell to the government, many of them, but the government is one of many customers that they're targeting, right? And so what you know, commercial companies need is for the government to be willing to buy as a service. Uh, so by the data, uh, the analysis that comes out of these systems, 
not buying the systems themselves. And so what's wrong with that? Why won't the government just buy it as a service instead of trying to buy the satellite itself? Well, in some cases we do. Uh, you know, the uh, you know NGA and NRO on the Intel side, they've had a, a contract for many years now called Enhanced View, where they have been buying imagery as a service, commercial uh, remote sensing imagery. Uh, but the problem is they it's not really expanded yet uh, that much. And on the DoD side, you know, folks are are much more skeptical of using this approach. And so, you know, what it's going to take is a paradigm shift, uh, and you've got to be willing to make trade-offs between what do you buy as a government-owned and operated system and what do you buy as a service that is commercially owned and commercially operated and you got to be willing to say you know what it won't necessarily meet our specifications uh, but we're going to buy what they have uh, and use it effectively and it might be a 90 percent solution rather than a hundred percent solution you know another problem you mentioned is the siloing of the sensing data instead of making it available across government so why is that happening and what's the solution? Well, you know, like I said before, a lot of the government owned and operated systems are very exquisite, have, you know, incredible capabilities, but they're highly classified and they keep, you know, the way you keep something secret is you don't tell people about it, right? <laughs> so you keep it compartmentalized and you tightly control who has access to the system and the data produced by the system. And so you end up with all of these classification silos within our government and certainly among our allies and partners, right? And so a lot of that, uh, you know, exquisite government uh, produced sensing data just can't be shared uh, throughout the government. One of the big advantages of commercial space remote sensing is that it's releasable. You can actually release it to our allies and partners and, and even sometimes when appropriate to the public. And we see that happening in Ukraine uh, that, you know, a, a lot of what we're seeing in the news day to day we see, you know, satellite uh, photos. Uh, we see other intelligence that is probably derived uh, from space-based systems. You know, troop locations, troop movements, things like that. Uh, that when you get that data through a commercial system, you can provide it directly to Ukrainian forces. You can provide it to other NATO allies, non-Five Eyes allies. Uh, folks that we don't normally have the same level of uh, um, intelligence sharing and trust with. Uh, and so, you know, that's one of the big advantages of going to commercial systems. And that's one of the things that has enabled this revolution in commercial space remote sensing uh, is the advancements that we've seen in cloud computing and cloud data storage uh, that's made some of these business models, models actually close for the first time. You know, the government is also a regulator of the commercial space sensing business. And I wonder if the current regulatory environment is really fostering a competitive and healthy industry? Well, that's one of the things I looked at in the, the report that I, I just did. Uh, and, you know, I'm not so sure that it is because the way that we regulate uh, commercial space remote sensing is primarily through NOAA, the weather agency. Uh, they give out licenses for folks to conduct um, Earth remote sensing. Uh, and the problem is the, the you know, best resolution that you're able to get a license for is based in part on what commercial firms in foreign countries are able to do uh, or are expected to be able to do in the near future. Uh, and so when you limit our companies you know, to only be able to do as much as foreign companies are able to do, the, that inherently gives us a second mover 
uh, advantage, right? Uh, where we're always locked into, you know, either, you know, tying our foreign competitors uh, or, you know, playing catch up with them once they move ahead. You know, we don't allow our companies to move ahead in higher resolution imagery until a foreign, uh, you know, company is going to move ahead first. Uh, and so, you know, that is really creating a disadvantage in our industry because other countries don't regulate it uh, as tightly as we do. Uh, and then, you know, you layer on top of that export controls uh, that we also control how the data is exported. Uh, and, you know, it just makes it a really tough operating environment. And I would argue that it really, you know, could put us, it could put us at a strategic disadvantage because the last thing we want to see happen uh, is for you know the state-of-the-art technology and innovation and commercial space remote sensing. Uh, we don't want that to move offshore. We don't want that to be in foreign uh, government hands or foreign commercial company hands because then not only can we not regulate it at all, we can't control where that information goes, we, not, we might not be able to access those systems in a time of crisis because a foreign government might disagree with us and cut us off from their commercial systems. Uh, so I think it's a really important concern and something that policymakers need to be conscious of. All right, well, Todd, thanks so much for joining us again. All right, thank you. Coming next, is 5G technology being managed properly? Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the wireless spectrum can be improved for the American people. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Poor 5G spectrum management undermines both privacy rights and national security. That's according to a former White House senior director for strategic planning on the National Security Council. Retired Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding is currently at the Hudson Institute. General, welcome to the program. Thank you, great to be here. I wanna start with a quote from your op-ed. It says this, treating 5G electromagnetic spectrum as real estate to be auctioned off to the highest bidder robs the American people of what should be administered as a common good. Can you explain that? Well, I think the best example to kind of visualize it because spectrum is such a hard thing to understand is imagine 95, everybody knows how congested that is. And you're driving down 95 and you're completely jammed in traffic and you look over and there's another highway and cars are whizzing by, but you have no way to get on an on-ramp. That's the way that we divide spectrum today in the country and it makes it impossible for us to take full advantage of 5G, which is a new technology which enables you to cobble together large pieces of spectrum to make these big super highways. Only we don't administer that it that way. But you don't like the auction system, and auctioning spectrum has raised over $200 billion since the mid-1990s. That's a lot of money for the U.S. Treasury. It is, but if 5G was fully realized in the United States, the estimates are that the benefit to the American people and the economy would be in the trillions. So when you compare 200 billion to trillions of economic value that could be gained by the, by the American people, I think it's a big difference. So you use the term in your article, squandering spectrum. How is the current system wasteful in your view? Well, if you took a spectrum analyzer, something that could detect where spectrum was be, being used in the United States, and you walked around the United States today, what you would find is there's areas where spectrum is being uh, utilized to its full extent, and then there's vast areas where spectrum's not being utilized at all. So what happens is the FCC, which has traditionally 
um, you, you know, had a preference to incumbents has gone either from giving spectrum away to selling spectrum. Both are inefficient in terms of how it allocates spectrum, particularly with 5G. 5G is a new technology which enables you to cobble together all of these pieces of spectrum, some that are being well used, others that are not being used at all, and make one big superhighway. And that's the piece that I was referring to. You know, your op-ed also says that Americans pay among the highest wireless subscription rates in the world for some of the slowest data speeds. But I thought we had pretty good service here. It is really, if you go around Europe and Asia, it is really bad compared to the rest of the world. And the reason is a lot of countries have gotten into the habit of sharing infrastructure. So we do that today here in the United States. A company like Crown Castle, which is a tower company, works with all the carriers to put their radio equipment on their towers. So in some respects, we are sharing there at the tower level, but other countries go further and they actually share at the network level. So Singapore is a good example of this. They have three virtual network operators and one physical network that, they, that all the operators share. And in my paper, when I was at the White House, when I wrote about the opportunities and challenges of 5G, I said sharing that infrastructure, that network infrastructure, is really where you can get the least cost for investment and the highest outcomes in terms of speed and bandwidth for users. So besides uh, sharing infrastructure, what specific recommendations do you have for better wireless spectrum management? Yes, I think we've tended to look at this in terms of national, and I think it would be better to think of it in terms of local. So if we had areas where you could, local areas where you could cobble together spectrum on one piece of infrastructure, it might be beneficial to that area. Now, when you think about the entire country, it could be that the United States sets aside some amount of spectrum for deployment in this manner. In other words, the spectrum could be either given away or sold either one, but whoever was building the infrastructure would be required to build it according to a certain set of standards. One is we're gonna have all the spectrum available via one network, which would enable better bandwidth, but the other is we're gonna protect the data that's carried within that network. That's essentially what I was trying to say when I, when I wrote my uh, op-ed. So where is China now in 5G deployment? Well, they're vastly surpassing the United States. You know, way more infrastructure deployed, you know, 10 times at least more infrastructure than in the United States. Also, what the government did was to say, hey, all of you network operators, you're gonna have to build cooperatively. In other words, you're gonna have to share the infrastructure because they understood that if they did it that way, they would have less investment in terms of cost to the country and more capability in terms of the user. So what kind of impact does this have to national security, poor spectrum management? How would that impact national security? Well, not only does it impede innovation in these technologies like artificial intelligence, autonomy, 5G, but also because there's no standards with regard to how we protect the data within, that data is accessible by the Chinese. So what China says is we want to be the Saudi Arabia of data. And the reason they say that is because data fuels artificial intelligence development. So they believe that they have access to their data, they have access to our data because it's all open, and they're therefore gonna have the best artificial intelligence in the world. And I think if we were to 
focus on protecting our data, encrypting it, for example, and ensuring the widest availability via a, a network like I'm talking about, then the, having that artificial intelligence develop in the United States would be, enable us to compete with China uh, in that area. All right. Well, General Spaulding, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Up next, NIST wants to hear from you on how it can improve its cybersecurity framework. Straight ahead on Government Matters, upgrading that framework to secure supply chains. We'll be right back. The Commerce Department through NIST has launched an effort to enhance the security and integrity of the technology supply chain. The process aims to improve the way that cybersecurity risks are managed as they relate to supply chains. Tony Scott is the former Federal Chief Information Officer. Tony, welcome to the program. Good to see you again. All right, so give us an example of a risk to the supply chain that a federal agency would need to manage. Well, one of the big ones is, you know, after you get your initial gear set up and installed and the hardware and the software and network connections working and so on, um, there's ongoing activities that take place. Uh, there's software updates, there's firmware and hardware uh, changes, there's operational maintenance activities that take place. And all of those are opportunities for bad things to sneak into an environment that may have been perfectly good to start off with. So that's just one example of probably many, but one that I, as a former CIO, worried about a lot. Apparently, Tony, there are over 30 different supply chain security efforts going on across the government. Why so many and why not just unify that effort? Well, I think it represents the enormity of the task, really. Um, and, uh, you know, every organization faces uh, different threats. The things that you're trying to protect may be very different across uh, the government. And um, so on the one hand, I think it's good that everybody's paying a lot of attention to this. But I do agree, I think there's a opportunity to consolidate some of the efforts and and make it a little more focused um, and you know these things tend to evolve over a period of time um, i'm actually pleased that the focus on supply chain has uh, crystallized uh, more quickly than some other things have in the past let's just say so how useful do you think is the nist cybersecurity framework currently is it doing what it needs to do well, i think it's a great starter piece of work. I think the areas that we really need to focus on now are things like um, management best practices, um, uh, governance uh, issues, um, things like, you know, who, you know, who makes decisions about cybersecurity in an organization and how quickly issues get escalated and, and to whom. Um, I think we need to do further work on the role of the government versus the role of the private sector in um, cybersecurity matters. Because uh, as we've seen, there's all kinds of actors from petty thieves all the way up to nation states. And, and so I think there's more clarification needed in some of those areas. Not necessarily work that just NIST needs to do, but the federal cybersecurity community as a whole. 
So give me a little bit more specifics, Tony, about the changes that need to be done, specifically with, with regards to securing the technology supply chain. Well, I think um, the, the first thing that I think needs to be done is uh, understanding that and uh, in, in creating at the highest levels of government, uh, you know, the uh, awareness that uh, the, the size of this problem and the, uh, and the gravity of it uh, on the one hand. And I think you're starting to see that. I think the Biden administration has done a good job with the various EOs that have come out and the focus from the president's management council and, and other groups. But ultimately that needs to work its way down into specific actions in each of the agencies. Um, and this is where CISA and some of the other agencies, I think, will play a, a, a really big role going forward. You know, I want to ask you about the international dimension. So if there's a component in the supply chain coming from a foreign country, what are the systems that we have in place to ensure its safety and security? Well, I think we rely on a multi-tiered approach today. Um, first is, you know, the... Um, the manufacturers or the suppliers of that equipment um, have to have processes and procedures in place to make sure uh, just for their own businesses survival sake that they they're not shipping bad stuff in their uh, components or or software on their uh, systems and so on so the first line of defense really starts there with the oems and, and their supply chain so you, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Tony. Well, and then you build on that, you know, with the um, organizations that are responsible for installing and supporting the equipment. Uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, the operational practices once, um, once things have been installed. So it's a multi-layered approach and you can never stop. It's a 24-7, 365 days a year uh, sort of effort. All right. Well, Tony, I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years 
have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.